A quick note to our listeners before we begin today's episode. Today's Declarations episode includes a discussion of suicide-related themes. Hi, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights here at the University of Cambridge. My name is Scott Novak, and I'll be your host on today's show. Today we are discussing if assisted dying should be legal, and whether the right to die should be considered a human right. A few states have legalized forms of assisted dying, such as Switzerland, but others, like the United Kingdom, have banned such practices. With us here to discuss the right to die is Stevie Martin. Stevie is a PhD in law student here at Cambridge. She is currently researching the empirical validity of the justifications for the ongoing blanket ban on assisted dying in the UK, and a consideration of whether or not the ban violates articles of the European Convention on Human Rights. I'm also joined by regular Declarations panelists Eva Milne and Max Curtis. Stevie, let's start off with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're researching right now in relation to the right to die and what led you to this research topic? So in terms of my current research, because I'm presently writing my first year paper, I've found myself in a bit of a discrete area about the common law definition of suicide because we take for granted that there's this ubiquitous understanding of what suicide is and actually what we think of suicide varies hugely across countless fields, you know, morally, ethically, philosophically, religiously. So my focus at the moment is purely legal. So that's where I'm at um, as a way of laying the foundations for my further research, which will ultimately, hopefully, examine the justifications in this jurisdiction against the right to assisted death and whether or not they actually are empirically borne out from research in different jurisdictions that currently have a permissive scheme. So that's ultimately my goal with a view to ascertaining whether or not actually Section 2 of the Suicide Act in this country violates human rights. And and what is Section 2 of the... what is Suicide the su- what is yes. the, Yeah, what is Section 2 of the Suicide so Act? So Section 2 of the Suicide Act prohibits the encouraging or assisting of suicide. And it came about effectively on the back of the decriminalization of suicide in the 60s. Suicide itself was decriminalized. I mean, the UK or England and Wales was one of the last common law jurisdictions to decriminalize suicide, but they kept, not uncommonly, the prohibition on assisting or encouraging suicide. Exactly what that means is up to some debate, but we now have DPP guidance to help us there. So this is a UK law, not an EU? No, so this is UK specific. Okay. Yes, Stevie. So as a law student, and I am in a lot of your classes on the right to die, uh, thing. <laughs> I am pretty familiar with the Nicklinson case. Yep. But to break that down for our listeners yep. and non-law students, yep. could you just summarise that? If you can, I know it's a massive no. judgment. <laughs> so Nicklinson involved a number of applications, but insofar as it concerned Mr. Nicklinson, the claim was that this blanket ban, so, you know, the prohibition on encouraging or assisting suicide violated his article 8 right to private life and the parameters of that application came about as a result of several previous cases so we had miss purdy who facilitated the preparation of the dpp's guidance and then we had miss pretty dpp is director of public prosecutions right exactly and then miss pretty who really was the groundbreaker in terms of ascertaining what rights under the European Convention are in play. So she had claimed that Article 2 was in play and Article 3, but um, the domestic courts and the European Court 
of human rights rejected that, but did accept that um, a prohibition on assisted suicide interfered with the right to private life. So we're now at a stage based on European jurisprudence that's been accepted by the domestic courts, including that um, Supreme Court in Nicholson, that how you choose to die is an intrinsic part of your private life. So there's no doubt that this ban interferes with that right or, well, the right to private life. The question for everybody is whether or not it's justified. And so Nicholson really was supposed to turn on that issue. And the Human Rights Act of 1998, which incorporates the European Convention of Human Rights into this jurisdiction, includes the power to issue declaratory relief. So it gives courts the discretionary power to make a declaration that a particular piece of legislation is incompatible with the European Convention. It has no effect on the validity of the legislation. It's effectively just a signal to Parliament that there's something problematic with this particular piece of legislation or this provision in a particular piece of legislation. So we get to Nicholson and the question was meant to be whether or not Section 2 of the Suicide Act was a disproportionate interference with the right to private life. What we ended up seeing, though, was a very complicated split amongst the nine judges who heard the case. At least four judges considered it was constitutionally inappropriate for the Supreme Court to have regard to the question at all. They shouldn't entertain it because of its moral, ethical, philosophical, policy-based issues. It was a matter solely for Parliament. It should go to Parliament. Bearing in mind that it had been before Parliament, Parliament has obviously considered this issue. There was amendments to the, the wording of Section 2. And then we have the five other judges who included Lord Kerr and Lady Hale, who considered that it wasn't constitutionally inappropriate to consider the question. And then you get this kind of weird reasoning by the other three judges in that, in that group of five who say that whilst it's not constitutionally inappropriate for us to consider it, given the complexity of the matter, we should really give Parliament another opportunity, which I would say completely mischaracterizes the nature of declaratory relief. Mm -hmm. Implicit within that is some suggestion that by issuing a declaration, you're in some way impeaching upon the role of parliament to, you know, alter a particular piece of legislation. And Lord Kerr and Lady Hale say that, you know, they get to the end of their reasons. And both Lord Kerr and Lady Hale determined that the interference was disproportionate. They said that it it wasn't proportionate to the aim, which was to protect vulnerable people, um, and that they should issue a declaration on that basis because Parliament can choose whether or not to listen to it. But on its face, they went through the actual consideration itself. So you have effectively three camps of judges, one camp who at the very outset said, we're not looking at this, it's a matter for Parliament. You have the next camp who say, well, we will look at it, but actually having had a cursory look at this, there's a lot of issues we're going to put it back to Parliament. And then you have the last two judges who say, well, we're charged. Parliament's told us to do this under Section 4. If they didn't want us to do it, they wouldn't give us a declaratory power. We've had a look at it. And it's incumbent upon the state to demonstrate that this interference is justified. And I think that's the real issue of Nicholson for you know anybody who's interested. Um, and it comes on the back of the decision of the Supreme Court in Canada, in Carter. Under Article 8, it's incumbent upon an applicant, so the individual, to demonstrate that there's been an interference with your right to private life. There's no dispute that the blanket prohibition on assisted suicide interferes with the right to private life. That being accepted, it was then incumbent upon the state to demonstrate why that interference was justified. And when you read the reasoning of the majority in Nicholson, you see that they've impermissibly shifted that burden. So effectively, it becomes incumbent upon applicants like Mr. Nicholson, who sadly passed away, to prove that the justification is is correct. And that's obviously wrong. That's erroneous. And that's what the Supreme Court in Carter argued against, because the state in Canada 
tried to argue the same lines, which is that, well, the blanket prohibition is aimed at protecting the vulnerable. You can't prove that it doesn't. Therefore, the interference is justified. Okay. So I have a question because there's different situations in which people will argue for their right to end their own life. So I'm wondering which it was with Nicholson. One is, I know in Switzerland, I think they have a provision where if you feel like you no longer want to weariness continue with, with your life. life. I think yes, I phrase it. Yes. Yeah. If you have that weariness of life, yep. you don't have to have a medical condition. You can just go through this process and then mm-hmm. end your own life. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are other situations, mm-hmm. of course, where it's like you're you're terminally yes. ill. You are going to suffer a lot if you go through yep. um, to the length of that illness yep. and let it take you through, yep. quote unquote, natural causes. So those people argued, I should be able to end my life now because I don't want to go through that suffering. Yes. So in which case or which like category was Nicholson in this Nicholson case? Nicholson was terminal. So the, okay. the vast majority of jurisdictions are terminal, including Canada post-carta. So the six jurisdictions in the States, um, mm-hmm. the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, so the Benelux jurisdictions. It, it, at this stage, it's psychiatric, but there still has to be some form of, quotes, illness, close quotes. Okay. There is movement towards a weariness. What what's interesting about what you're saying with the some of the uh, judges' justifications for why this is an arbitrary interference with yeah. the right to privacy then then is that sounds like it could apply then to any situation yes. because if the right to end your life saying the right to end your life is a right that you should have that means regardless of whether you're ill or not is that is that correct a correct yeah. understanding Yes. So that would be the logical extension of the argument. So I think it's really important to, and it's difficult to understand across the cases, across the jurisdictions, what the quotes, rights, close quotes are. And it's very difficult to compare the cases because the rights are different. They're framed differently. Mm -hmm. In Canada, it's the right to life, liberty and security. And it was framed properly in that jurisdiction as a question of the right to life rather than a right to die because mm. the argument that was accepted was that having this prohibition causes people to take their lives sooner. And in that way, it was violating your right to live or, to put it differently, the right not to die, which is a hard thing to get your head around in the context of assisted dying. And so in this jurisdiction, obviously, we don't talk about a right to die and the courts are very averse to any sort of discussion about a right to die. It's the right to private life and encompassed within that is this question of autonomy and that, you know, we should have a a choice over how we leave this life and enter whatever comes next or however you perceive, you know, your transition to be. So. It's difficult to get the the concepts tied down, but I think it's important because it, it frames in the discussion. So in the UK, at least, it centers around not a right to die, not a right to life because that's been rejected, but what the right to private life means in terms of how you die and the control you have over that. And so we see that in withdrawal of treatment cases and refusal of treatment cases where the question is autonomy. And I mean, part of it, I think, is this tension between societal understandings of the sanctity of life versus the individual's autonomy over their own decisions. And I think the right to die, as we understand it, voluntary euthanasia, assisted suicide, these are some of the hardest decisions that people make in their entire lives. The point at which you end your life can be, in some cases, one of the biggest decisions you make. Yeah, absolutely. I think, too, it's one of the one of the very few issues that we all have a right to have an opinion on because we all confront our death. We're all, you know, at some stage going to die. And so it invokes a visceral emotive response, which I think in some ways undermines the debate because you can't be clinical about it in the way that perhaps this requires in some respects Um, because everybody has an opinion, including instinctively. We end up, I think, 
sometimes in muddied waters. Not to say that those considerations aren't relevant. Obviously, moral, ethical, philosophical considerations have pervaded the debate about suicide for centuries. And at the same time, I guess there's a reluctance to talk about death. Absolutely. Right. And that kind of points to some of the judicial or legislative cowardice one might say in these cases yeah mortality is something that we all struggle to confront I think you know at different stages in our life and absolutely it makes the judges very uncomfortable because they're meant to be you know impartial individuals who are black letter lawyers but values inevitably encroach and and you can understand you know the the, um, South African Supreme Court of Appeal in a very recent decision following a, a lower decision that effectively allowed for assisted suicide in certain circumstances overturn that decision on a technical point because apparently they say that the criminal law in South Africa doesn't preclude uh, assisted suicide in certain circumstances. But you get to the end of that judgment. And in South Africa, like Canada, the powers conferred on the courts in those jurisdictions are extraordinarily strong. So in South Africa, the courts are mandated to amend the common law or, or the law more generally in order to accord with their human rights, so their their rights charter. Similarly, in Canada, courts are required to invalidate legislation, which is a very it's a very strong power compared to the declaratory power here. But you get to the end of this judgment by the South African Supreme Court of Appeal, and they say, of course, if the right case comes before us, we will amend if necessary. But we would have obviously preferred Parliament to do that for us, and that's the reality. Of course, the courts would rather Parliament to engage in this debate. The problem with Nicholson is that when you go and read the subsequent House of Commons debates, so very shortly after Nicholson, we had two debates regarding amendments to Section 2. The House of Commons undoubtedly <laughs> defeated any amendments, but when you read the references to Nicholson, you see how confused um, the members were. They didn't understand what the case stood for. Some were suggesting that the majority had found that it was disproportionate. That's not right. <laughs> Lady Hale and Lord Kerr had found that it was disproportionate. The majority had made no finding other than that it was more appropriate for Parliament to consider it. So. It's all well and good to say that Parliament's meant to consider this issue, but they should do it with the court's guidance as to what the law is and where the law should sit regarding the European Convention. But So I'd like to jump to the United States case. Yep. Um, of course, one particularly famous case in the United States was the Terry Schiavo case, yes. where ultimately the Supreme Court ruled that you could in certain circumstances, such as her case, where she was just being artificially sustained yes. with food and water and had yes. been in a coma for many, many years. And I, f- I forget, for at least like almost two decades, I think. Mm-hmm. So under those situations, the court has ruled, yes, yes you can end life. But that's basically one of the very few yes. exceptions in most states. Forms of assisted dying yes. are e- remain illegal. Yes. And this is all becoming relevant again Mm -hmm. on where I'm from because Neil Gorsuch, of Mm -hmm. course, is Mm -hmm. a potential nominee. Well, he is a nominee, a potential, uh, will potentially be on the U.S. Supreme Court um, in a matter of time. And he wrote one, the only book that he wrote was a book, The Future of Assisted Mm -hmm. Suicide and Euthanasia. And so I'd just like to bring him bring his arguments in here because I think it's important to talk about. So what is the opposition saying? And so I have a few quotes from his book. So he, his case is that the U.S. should, quote, retain existing law banning assisted suicide and euthanasia on the basis that human life is fundamentally and inherently valuable and that the intentional taking of human life by private persons is always wrong. And he also says that, quote, any line one might draw among human beings for purposes of determining who must live and who may die 
ultimately seems to devolve into an arbitrary exercise of picking out which particular instrumental capacities one especially likes, unquote. And this is important in his argument because then he associates people in the past who have argued for this right to die with eugenics and a form of killing disabled or babies that are deemed not to fit yes. the norm. Yes. And to him, that that seems to be um, very problematic. Yeah. And what, what do you make of those arguments in opposition? One thing I would note is I had a look at the website. So I've read his book, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and the website that regarding his book advocates it as a, as a novel perspective. It's not. This argument regarding the intrinsic value of life has been around for centuries. You have Augustine who talks about and And it's important to examine the path of suicide because we have the Stoics. You know, there's a long history of rational suicide and suicide being a societal good, especially if you are, you know, not just if you're a burden on society, but also for yourself. And this is about, you know, Switzerland and other jurisdictions that are, that are more focused towards the elderly. Sometimes you make a decision that you've lived a life that you want to live and what's confronting you now isn't what you want to confront effectively. You don't want to run the course because it makes people feel better or whatever. It's your choice. So, I mean, that's the first observation I would make. These aren't new arguments. They're important arguments, absolutely, and I think they find reflection in the judgments that we see in this country and in jurisdictions that don't have a permissive regime, which is this fixation with the intrinsic value of life. But I read a, a article recently that made a very good point, which is those sorts of arguments are more for our own sake. It's more for us to reassure the elderly or our mothers or our fathers or ourselves that you're worth something rather than actually asking the individual what it is that they want to get out of life. So this fixation with intrinsic value to suggest that you have control over how you exit because we have no control on over how we enter doesn't in any way undermine the value of life. In fact, it almost bolsters it. It's giving you control as an autonomous individual over what path you take. And we respect that in every other aspect. So long as you don't interfere with the rights of other people, we completely respect people to choose the paths that they take. It's just that when we get to this end stage of life where we're all just uncomfortable with our morality, that we start grabbing hold of these arguments that actually, when carried to their logical extension, don't bear fruit. You know, statistics are always difficult. And with a lot of the anti-assisted dying campaigners, they they pick and choose certain statistics from permissive jurisdictions. What we know from the Netherlands and Belgium is that we're seeing a flattening out of of rates. And it's very difficult to examine the Netherlands anyway, post the introduction of legislation, because they had a, a judicially regulated regime. So what we see is rates of assisted dying in the Netherlands that reflects the rates pre the introduction of the statute. Um, but I found some stats actually from the Royal Dutch Medical Association from 2016, which I thought were really interesting, because it's very important not to consider assisted dying in isolation. You have to consider it within the the broader sphere of withdrawal of treatment, refusal of treatment, palliative sedation. If you look at it in isolation, you're almost being intellectually dishonest. So when you look at these statistics, it shows that there are 140,000 deaths in the year. Cancer accounted for 42,000 of those. Euthanasia and assisted suicide represented 2.9% of those deaths, whereas, and this is important, palliative sedation represented 12.5% and withdrawal of treatment 18%. And so in the latter two, these are accepted courses of treatment at the end of life. Um, None of us know exactly what is experienced in palliative sedation because the people who are experiencing it, ultimately, if if it runs its course, die. We hope as, you know, family members, as medical practitioners, as lawyers, that that they are comfortable, that they're not conscious of what they're going through. But we don't 
We don't know that. Mm. But importantly, you know, withdrawal of treatment. In the UK in particular, we have this fixation and, 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 you know, arguably rightly so on autonomous decision making. So if you are competent, then you absolutely have the right to say, I don't want to be treated anymore. Um, Either that means I don't want to take a further course of medication or I want you to withdraw this treatment. And the doctors have to respect it. The courts have to respect that, um, provided you're competent. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, that is, I, I would argue, no different to effectively seeking assistance I would argue that withdrawal of treatment potentially falls within the legal definition of suicide. And if you then run that argument to its logical conclusion, we already then have assistance in the form of withdrawal of treatment. Um, and then when you look at the statistics, you know, the arguments against assisted dying are protection of the vulnerable, whatever that means in, in the highly patronising way that it's levied at particular groups of individuals, the elderly or the disabled. But we know that a huge percentage of people obtain withdrawal of treatment and we don't put them through the process that people who achieve assisted suicide um, and euthanasia and jurisdictions that allow it do we, they aren't subject to you know review by three psychiatrists they don't have to prove that they've considered all options that you know life really isn't for them anymore it is simply i don't want this treatment anymore and you have to respect that to do otherwise would constitute at the very least a deprivation of liberty if not assault in violation of article three of the european convention so I think also what's interesting about the Neil Gorsuch case in particular is that this is supposedly a very conservative mm -hmm. critique of assisted suicide. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I've read at least one conservative argument in favor of it, yeah. which is that, you know, normally we very rightly so have this societal impetus to try and intervene when someone is considering suicide. Mm -hmm. But when you're considering cases like these, you know, it's really paternalistic to say that you know what's best for this person when in fact they do have these autonomous yeah. decision-making powers that, and they're very much capable of deciding when it's time for them to go. That's a great point, Max. As you were speaking earlier, Stevie, about conceptualizing the right to die, not so much as a right to die, but a right to privacy, I was thinking of libertarianism, really, that this sounds like something that could be compatible with a lot of views on the left and views on the right. I think a lot where some of the conservative comes in, at least in Gorsuch's case, um, I know his advisor at Oxford, John Finnis, yes. a Catholic, yes. and a lot of these, one of the leading constituencies against assisted forms of dying is the Catholic Church. And so some of this is tied to religion, of course. Yes. And just to add to that, Scott, actually, I checked this morning on the Dying with Dignity website. And Dying with Dignity are an organisation campaigning for legalisation of assisted suicide in the UK. So let's take this with a pinch of salt. But they have proclaimed that 79% of religious people are in favour of some form of assisted dying. And in fact, it might not be surprising, but Desmond Tutu has mm. declared his support for mm. assisted dying as an archbishop. That's very interesting. I, I just want to, just out of curiosity, because I, I haven't thought extensively about these issues before we've had you on our show, what what are people's views on our panel about assisted dying? I'm, I'm very for assisted dying. I think mm -hmm. um, it's intrinsic to who you are to decide how you leave and whether that's, you know, and it's important to not fixate on the terminal context because a lot of the debate around assisted dying comes up in the context of people who are terminally ill, but, you know, with an increasingly aging population, I think I personally, and I mean, this is purely from a personal perspective, I would much rather decide at the point where I can no longer engage in the activities that I want to, you know, with dementia on the rise as well, that's terrifying to me. I would much rather be able to say to my loved ones, I want to, I want to leave when I'm conscious of you being here, when I'm able to, you know, walk outside, say goodbye to my dog 
and I know that this is it, then, and maybe not, maybe, you know, the important thing is it's just the option. This is, you know, you're not enforcing this on people. It's just giving people the choice. And maybe at death's knell, I will say no, because I'm an atheist and, you know, the afterlife is terrifying, but it's the, it's the comfort that comes from knowing. Isn't it true that something like a third of people who end up getting prescriptions for assisted dying don't end up using Absolutely. it? Absolutely. The bigger question as well is, when we start talking about this, we have to start asking wider questions about the role of suicide in society and people's decision making. Yeah, I mean, I feel very uncomfortable telling someone that they need to live their life out if they are living with an unbearable condition. I think that it comes down to the individual's autonomy. But I am also very conscious of when does a right to die turn into a duty to die or an obligation to die. And actually, we were talking about this yesterday, Scott, about portrayals and representations of people with disability in film and media and how often stories depict the alleged problem of disability as being solved by death. There was that film last year, Me Before You. Mm-hmm. I didn't see it myself. I don't know if you did, Stevie. Mm. But essentially, a billionaire heartthrob recruited a carer and they fell in love, but he flew off to Switzerland to end his life because um, he he felt like he had lived life to the full and he couldn't live it any longer from his wheelchair. So that's concerning. And we also have Million Dollar Baby, which portrayed a mercy killing. So I think we need to become more conscious of how people with disabilities are portrayed in uh, mainstream culture uh, and be sensitive to that. And there are also some cases where I think we would all be challenged to wonder whether or not assisted suicide is something we'd condone for certain cases. Like there's, I think um, somewhere in Europe, there was a case of someone who um, was gay and felt very, you know, their whole life had been incredibly pressured because of this. And as a result, felt like they were going under this unbearable suffering and got a lot of psychological issues from the, you know, bullying and whatnot that they experienced. Um, which reminds me, actually, of one of the most famous writings on suicide was from Durkheim. And I, yeah. you might know more about this, but he argued that, like, suicide generally in society happens mostly because of, like, whether or not your social group is, like, mm-hmm. integrated in society. So if you're an LGBT person, mm-hmm. the reason why suicide rates are so high is, you know, very obviously because, like, you're not integrated in society the way that you ought to be. And so that raises some questions about not only does that person have the autonomous right to decide if they should have assisted suicide? But also, is society integrating people and accepting people the way that they should? I suppose as a result of my study, I spent a lot of time thinking circularly and, you know, trying to get my head around the various aspects of this issue. And absolutely, there's concerns about sending a message. I think it's really important to remember that we're talking with assisted suicide about a very small proportion because suicide isn't illegal. We know that over 6,000 people in the UK take their lives every year via suicide. We have to be careful not to medicalise suicide because that's what happened, obviously, as a result of you know the 18th and 19th century in this country. It was It's really interesting when you trace the history of suicide illegalisation in the UK um, to see how it came about because we didn't have laws regarding suicide before or even discussions about suicide before the 1600s and then you have you know the creation of this felony so fellow de say um, which arguably was solely in order to fill the coffers of the crown because it took the estate of the suicide away from their master and put it into the crown coffers so you know there's a lot of discussion about actually this wasn't a question about morality this wasn't a question about you know religious concerns you then obviously have the treatment that suicides receive so you know buried at the crossroads they had their estate taken off and they had a state driven through their heart 
And then you see throughout the coronial inquests, you know, in the late 18th century, 19th century, coroners and their juries increasingly finding that the person didn't suicide because they weren't of sound mind. And so that's where we start with this medicalization of suicide, because before that, there hadn't been this, you know, assumption that the person who suicides or, or the suicide themselves weren't of sound mind, that it wasn't a decision that purely because of their social circumstances or whatever, that they decided they no longer wanted to live. We start seeing the coroners and the juries trying to circumvent finding suicide by assuming unsoundness of mind. And that's that's continued in very recent huge meta-analysis um, of studies concerning risk factors regarding suicide have, have in a way displaced this assumption of depression. So we see suicide linked with depression almost instinctively. The mm-hmm. two go hand in hand in any debate. And empirically, that's not necessarily accurate. Depression is no greater risk factor for suicide than other risk factors. So this medicalization has pervaded, and I think it's important that we are cognizant of that aspect of the debate when we're discussing these issues. But I absolutely agree. We have to more widely as a society reframe the way we perceive disability and what we perceive as disability. Because as you identified, what we our personal selves considered to be debilitating may not fit the definition of what a disability is, but it may, you know, that doesn't necessarily deny the fact that it has a huge impact on your day-to-day life. It may affect the way you interact Mm -hmm. with people. And as you talk about LGBTQ individuals are a disproportionate, you know, percentage of suicides in Western and non-Western jurisdictions. So, I mean, these are all extremely complicated societal issues, but I think when you read the debates, it's very important that those sorts of problems don't foreclose a discussion about whether or not actually opening up assisted suicide with the attendant procedural requirements in any way exacerbates these problems. And I remember vividly a, a woman from Belgium who had psychiatric illnesses and had for years self-harm horrifically and f- had gone through the process to seek assistance in dying, had seen three psychiatrists over numerous years, had been granted assistance. And this documentary follows her and it's extraordinarily confronting because you think this person's here and they're not um, and it challenges you personally and your perceptions of mental illness. But she gets to the day and she decides not to kill herself. I've seen that, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. this oh. choice and this is yeah. the thing that assisted dying offers people and that's one of the main arguments in favor of it is the comfort especially for the terminally ill is that i i don't necessarily the mere fact that i've got access to it doesn't mean that i'm going to use it but it gives me comfort and then more so you get people who may not have had the recourse that this woman had to the psychiatric help that she got as a result of the assisted dying scheme in that country so and similarly, there are a multitude of stories that, you know, people who were autistic but couldn't hadn't been diagnosed and their lives were insufferable as a result of it and they'd been incorrectly diagnosed with a multitude of mental illnesses go through this process and they're diagnosed with autism and are able to live an extraordinarily fulfilling life. So, I mean, for every argument against, there's potential arguments for it. It's, yeah. Stevie, I just want to pick up on something you said there about how that woman had access to healthcare. So I was reading an article in The Guardian. It was a situation in Bangladesh and in Bangladesh even attempted suicide is illegal. Basically a Bangladeshi father was seeking mercy killings of his terminally ill son and grandsons who all had a muscular progressive generative incurable disease. This man was a fruit vendor, he had no money left 
Uh, they were homeless. In Bangladesh, there is no free healthcare. An estimated 600,000 Bangladeshis suffer from incurable diseases, but the country has only one palliative care centre and no hospice services. So quite aside from that very tragic set of circumstances, what does this tell us about the development of a right to die around the world? And moreover, is it a right for a privileged few who have access. Mm. I mean, in, to, to go to Dignitas, I think you have to pay something like £10,000. Well, it's expensive, Oregon, yeah. I think I looked at the statistics, most recent statistics from Oregon, and of the people who had access, and it was only 218, the majority were over 65, 93% were white, well-educated, so 43.1% had at least a bachelor's degree. So this runs contrary to the argument about the vulnerable, but absolutely this is a question of healthcare, almost, and... A lot of people in the four camp would argue that assisted dying is just a further aspect of palliative care in the same way that palliative sedation is. Assisted dying is just another form or assisted suicide more specifically is another form of palliative care. And I think that bears fruit when you look at countries that don't have a robust palliative care system. The question there is, do we not just come back to the essence of what suicide is based on, you know, philosophers from the third century about making a decision based on your lot in life? It's all well and good for us to feel, you know, incredibly bad for individuals who confront those circumstances. And it's a stark reminder of how privileged we are. And it's a reminder for people like me who engage in this debate that there's very real consequences. But that's the societal reality for individuals in a lot of a lot of countries. Um, and you sort of come back to Camus and the other debaters about suicide and perhaps, you know, that's the ultimate act of autonomy, which is deciding that this isn't for me. It's making a decision that this life that I'm living is not what I want to continue to live. Um, and I guess in a way it's sort of a reflection of the importance of having a palliative care system or a system that permits, um, you know, this mercy killings, quote unquote, well, Eva, I know when we were talking yesterday to plan this episode, I think you mentioned like some of the chemicals that they use in Switzerland to assist in dying cost around $10,000 or so. Is that? I, I think that they are expensive. Or that makes at, up at the very least, they're expensive. You know, yeah. these are not expensive. cheap. These are not cheap processes, regardless of how you do them, if you want you know, the idea is to do them in a relatively humane way where uh, you have hopefully they'll feel the least amount of pain as possible. Yeah. Um, but from what you've been saying and what uh, other people have been saying as well, it seems to be a false analogy to equate assisted forms of dying with eugenics, Absolutely. because obviously the key difference is with these eugenic case studies from history, it was not by the will of the people no. being killed to be killed. Yes. Whereas this focuses much more exactly. on like the people who are dying consent exactly. to that. And that obviously that consent mm. makes a world of difference. I guess the, for me personally, at least the more gray area where I think I would need to do more thinking on, and I'm not entirely sure about for myself at this moment is those type of cases that Max brought up mm. of for LGBT people who experience depression. So I'm, I grew up, you know, in a rural mm -hmm. countryside, came out as gay. I thought I, like, had bouts of depression mm -hmm. regularly, but then it was just because I was, like, gay and not yeah. being accepted at the time, and that's not something I, like, like deal with anymore. But, mm. you know, so I, I was just thinking of myself back then, like, I, I, I guess I, you know, it, it depends on who these, mm -hmm. who assisted dying is mm. accessible to and under what conditions, I think. Mm -hmm. So as, and I think as some of the court cases that you've talked about, they've been relatively clear and like, okay, for people 
um, who want to end their life, who are like adults. Mm-hmm. And then there's a compelling case that yes. that should be the case. But for if you're, what about if you're a child and have mm-hmm. some of these conditions, mm-hmm. who makes that decision? I, I don't even parents. know if there's, or the parents. The, I mean, yeah, with children, the, it's a very different area because yeah. at this stage it's terminal still. So I guess there's that still paternalistic aspect of it, which is you can't possibly mm-hmm. know what your life's going to be like. Don't worry, it will get better. Um, yeah. So you have to be terminal in those jurisdictions that allow, Okay. Uh, talking about assisted dying as opposed to, you know, neonatal and other withdrawal of treatment cases. So, okay, yeah. But You're absolutely right. I think the the key thing to remember is in these jurisdictions, there is at least an attempt to put in place a regulatory regime so that if you did present to at least one of the one or two or three psychiatrists that you have to attend uh, in the case of at least psychiatric illness, one would hope that a discussion would reveal that it's perhaps situational as opposed to an underlying mental illness, which is the general requirement. I mean, in the people that you're exposed to, especially in the Netherlands and Belgium, when you read the research into this and the guidelines, these are people at the top of their field. These aren't, you know, print your diploma off online psychiatrists. These are individuals who represent the psychiatric association and are properly vetted. So you would hope that they're able to distill individuals who have a genuine underlying mental illness mm-hmm. that is causing them great distress. And you've tested the bounds of their decisions to live or not live, as opposed to those who are situational and help is provided to those individuals to get assistance in respect of addressing those situational factors that may be influencing their decisions. I mean, that's hopeful, mm-hmm. of course. And it, I, I don't have enough research into the psychiatric aspects of assisted suicide. And obviously, I mean, this is what informs the decision in the six U.S. states to only allow assisted suicide in respect of terminal illness, not even touching on the question about whether or not you can accurately um, estimate whether a person is going to die in the next six months or not. But Mm -hmm. what we see in those jurisdictions that are allowing certain forms of assisted dying is a real focus on terminal illness, I think, with a view to avoiding these sorts of situations because it is obviously that murky area when you talk to anybody about assisted dying, including those who are in favour of it, you hit mental illness and it becomes far more dubious. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, understandably, because mental illness in and of itself, as as with disability, is it has its own societal issues. We have perceptions of mental illness, you know, as not being terminal illnesses, although some people would tell you, including researchers in depression, that it is a terminal condition. But mm-hmm. I mean, these are all. Yeah, yeah, what no, it these are the how big questions. <laughs> and how difficult. Um, how do you think the laws concerning assisted forms of dying will mm-hmm. evolve in the UK and in other countries around the world going forward? So I think that following Nicholson. Mr. Conway is going to have a hard time if the court adopts the reasoning that the majority in Nicholson advocated, because we now have, since Nicholson, had subsequent debates that were quite damning of any suggestion of amendments to Section 2. Whether or not that's right, I think, obviously, you'll have gauged from my comments. I I think that um, so far the, the state hasn't provided the evidence necessary to demonstrate that an indiscriminate ban so not a ban that, you know, allows for terminally ill individuals, but complete ban is a proportionate response to protecting the vulnerable, especially in circumstances where we have withdrawal of treatment and there's a, a, an active protection of an individual's right to withdraw treatment. So I think that ultimately, especially as more cases concerning blanket bans more generally, so abortion and prisoners' voting rights come before the domestic courts and European Court of Human Rights, it will become inevitable that there's a recognition that a blanket ban that doesn't permit terminal 
terminal individuals at least um, access is disproportionate, not least because we have, as I say, six jurisdictions in the US, Colombia, Canada, a number of European jurisdictions, potentially South Africa, and obviously Australia, my own country, Victoria, is currently debating permitting assisted dying. So we have a movement. It's significantly greater than it was 10 years ago and even when Tony Nicholson was before the courts in this country. So I think, I think and I hope ultimately that we will get to a stage where at least we in, the, in England and Wales reflect other jurisdictions in allowing terminally ill individuals access to assisted dying, whether that's through assisted suicide, i.e. you're given the utensils necessary in order to take your own life, as opposed to voluntary euthanasia, which is permitted in a few jurisdictions, including Canada, following Carter, but not many, is debatable. But I think we'll get there. I think we will get there. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Declarations. We'd love to hear any thoughts and feedback you have about this episode. So please tweet us at DeclarationsPod on Twitter and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast if you'd like to contact us. Please subscribe and thank you for tuning in to Declarations. Declarations.